Kreuzer and welcome to At the Table, or Urtha Burth, a six-part series presented by Artis Mundi in partnership with Cardiff Metropolitan University. In each episode of At the Table, we've invited guests to bring their curiosity and knowledge to help us unfold and explore the artist's work. In this episode, shortlisted Artis Mundi 9 artist Beatrice Santiago Munoz will be talking about her work with feminist anthropologist, poet and performance artist Dr. Gina Athena Ulis, Francis McKee, Director of Centre for Contemporary Arts Glasgow, and curator, filmmaker and founder of the Black Arts Film Festival Wales, Yvonne Konecki. I call myself an artist scholar. Dr. Gina Athena Ulis. I'm an anthropologist as well. I do multimedia works. I'm a performer. That's really where I live. But I've been paying the bills for a long time as a professor. I teach anthropology. And I am currently in Santa Cruz, California, where I teach at the University of uh, California, Santa Cruz, in the Feminist Studies Department. My name is Yvonne Konecki, and I am by trade a film programmer specialising really in Black British and Caribbean film. I'm also studying um, the leisure activities of elder Caribbeans in Wales, specifically Newport and Cardiff. I have a special interest in the area which has was originally the kind of Caribbean settlement after 1948, which is Pill, what's known as Pill Gwentley or Pill. And I am doing some um, ethnographic research in that area. Recently, I was invited to do a film for Artist Mundi on very much the same subject. So I'm just about finishing that off now. I'm Beatriz Santiago Munoz. I'm an artist. It's two o'clock in the afternoon here and like really loud day out of my window. So I hope that's not too disturbing. Francis McKee. We did meet last Friday and there were several things came up. One of the things that I thought might be good to start with was colonialism as dismemberment. I was really curious about that. And you also said something that really intrigued me to Beatrice, that there is something about the unseen in the films that perhaps people in the Caribbean can see that other people can't see, but there's there's something underneath it that is kind of visible. Mm. And I was hoping you could maybe talk about that. Dr. Gina Athena Ulis. That quote from Jackie Alexander, you know, in which she says colonialism was about dismemberment, for my own practice and my own work, it was like the point of entry in terms of how to think about why I would be doing what I'm doing and to what end, right? And the end is repair. Undoubtedly, fracture is what we have inherited. It's what we keep recreating. Whether you are in the academy where we are, you know, invested in disciplines with their lines, or we are this current moment in the pandemic, certain folks are aware and don't want to be aware and only thinking of themselves, you know, we are and have always been, in a sense, fractured. So for me, you know, looking at the work, I kept thinking of fractals. You know, when I look at your films, like that's one of the things that keeps coming to me. And, you know, fractals as imagery, as symbols. I know you have a lot to say about symbols. And at the same time, looking at the work, my first impulse, or my first response has been, what it does to the senses, what it does 
for example, that we began without sound and then having to rely with our other, on our other senses in order to take more of it in. When a sense is disabled or compromised, the other ones are heightened. So that pursuit of wholeness from Alexander need not necessarily be whole in the way we've been taught to think about wholeness, especially given what we've inherited. Beatrice Santiago Munoz. I'm not sure if I can tie this directly, but one of the things that I think about using a camera here in the place where I live, like at every moment I try to reconsider what the camera does as a social object, what kinds of relations it makes possible. I think about it in a really, really basic level when you have a camera or even an audio recorder, now that you're talking about, you know, different senses as well. It's a way of saying, I am paying attention in a different way of delineating or, or demarcating and proposing a different kind of relationship than the one you already have with that person. I realize that a lot of the films that are in the show at Artes Mundi don't actually have that many people. They're less about the relation and more about different ways of seeing. But actually that's not common across my work. Most of my work comes out of an encounter with a person and trying to pay attention to a way of thinking and being of that person to that moment of encounter. So. I guess to go back to the word rassemblage or like coming together, one, I related to this idea of the encounter using recording devices or the questions that a camera can bring, like who looks, where does the image circulate, what kinds of meanings does it accrue, what does it mean to the people that you are filming and what does it mean once it circulates? Like all these questions are sort of embedded in the machine and in the larger visual machinery. And all of them are brought to bear on that encounter. It can be proposed as a reformulation. Yeah, I had problems with the silence as well as watching the films today, like Black Beach. It's very distinctly silent. <laughs> and so it reminded me of old uh, anthropology films. I was thinking of Jean Rouge and people like that. Also because it's in black and white. So there's this kind of retro feeling to it. And also it leaves you a lot of space to guess what might have happened or what is happening, which I quite enjoy. When you think about like the history of filmmaking in the Caribbean, you have to realize that most people in the Caribbean have been mostly subjects of the camera. But the work that is made is not directed at us. We're not supposed to be the viewers, you know? This is something that's always in my mind, you know? I'm, I'm the primary audience for the work I make is the people that you first see in the films themselves. And I'm thinking of the films as something that I am making with them and for them because they are also ways of thinking together. I was thinking a lot about the idea of haunting the future, you know, like making sure that these people who are, were the people that led disobedience movements in Vieques that made sure that the US military left and stopped bombing, that put their bodies on the line, that became sick, that are sick right now, but that at, at the same time that they led those movements and they were the ones that organized the current possibilities, at the same time, the sort of the battle for the territory is being lost, really, you know? So I was thinking, how do I take these images and kind of throw them towards the future so they cannot be 
erased, so they cannot be forgotten. So they continue to be in the present of like whoever lives in this land in the future, these images and, and these people will still be there with them. It's interesting. I'd love to hear what Yvonne thinks as well, because... Um, yeah, I, I really had a good time watching the films, I must say. When Gina was talking about repairing, that's what she felt her end game was. I really kind of got that feeling from um, from Beatrice's films. I really enjoyed watching the film that she had called March Solomon. I know that you've done that fantastic installation and you've collided all the films so that you will blow everyone's minds when they actually go to Artist Monday, which I think is fantastic. But the, the fact that you guys sent me the films and I was able to spend some time, you know, with each of the film and, and, and kind of think, okay, you know, where's this coming from? And what's the vibe of this film? It was really very refreshing for me because I'm Caribbean born in Wales, but spent a lot of time in the Caribbean, in, in Jamaica, in the interior of Jamaica. So when I saw March Solomon, am I pronouncing that right? When I watched that film and I just saw two kids, I, I didn't I didn't watch the subtitles, I didn't watch the subtitled version, so I just saw two kids kind of living their lives, you know, it's kind of very, the camera's very close to them, they're having their own conversation with each other, the young boy is doing things that you expect to see happen in the Caribbean, you know, he's walking through a market, he's um, working, you know, he's got a job as a, what I would call a butcher, in the butchers, things like that. But to me, it felt as though these are the kind of experiences you expect black people in the in the Caribbean, in a sort of very general country or urban country environment to have. At least that's the kind of experiences that I was having when I was over there. And the one thing that I found very interesting is when I went to stay up in, in the mountains in the Caribbean, I spent a lot of time just being bored. <laughs> but I could see that that energy, if you like, or that vibe within that type of film. Leisure would be another word for, word for boredom. There's yeah. A set of ideas but, around Yeah, it. but I think that's disruptive, you see. That's when you move away from colonization and you start to see in a different way. You start to see people for who they are, you know, for where, for where that for their particular standpoint in the world as opposed to the camera subjecting them to what they should be or what they should what they want to see them as you know they're not smiling happy people for the camera telling you that there's no problem you know <laughs> they're people who have hopes and dreams and ideas all of their own frustrations sit around talking potentially about local music you know just hanging out I don't think that people get opportunities to have that connection with the Caribbean in that way, you know, with the mm -hmm. 80, what the 80% of people are actually doing of a daytime. And also there was one that you have, another film that you had that I truly enjoyed, where people were just tracing things in the air and then tracing around like door frames and, and you can't see their faces particularly. They're just kind of doing this thing. And mm -hmm. for me, that, that was like a disruption. You know, that's a disruption again of what you would expect or how you would expect people to be uh, behaving in that environment. It's a reorientation, yeah. right? 
disorientation as well, or maybe a disorientation to reorient, asking for a realignment, I would say, and put that aside first, it's inviting a, a, a different rhythm. That piece, which is gorgeous, has a kinetic energy to it at points, right? And, and at the same time, it's really exigent because it's asking for you to keep paying attention to it. And sensitizing, I keep coming back to sensory, another way of engaging, another way of seeing, as you said, um, Beatrice. And for me, who's an educator, so I, I, I want to add that, who's very much concerned with pedagogy. I teach young students. Part of the aim to help anyone sort of have an expanded imagination, right? Because that's what to me is what I do is, you know, we all grew up and here's the world and I got skills, I got my doctorate and I studied this. And now I can show you that the world is a little bigger than you thought, right? Just a little bigger. And that's all I do. And that's all I try to do. To do that though, conditions need to be optimal because we've also socialized into our ways of being in the world. So that for me is what the work does. It, that unsettling is necessary for new thinking to emerge because it kind of like snaps us out of our socialized way of being. Yeah, it's very creative. Yeah. And there was something too in what Yvonne, the film Yvonne was talking about. The two kids are talking sometimes about uh, magic and they're talking about zombies in the market. But oh, again, wow. I, again, in the most banal way, it's not like something sensational or spectacular. It's, incredi- it's incredibly boring. Uh, I think that's a zombie. No big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's what I like is the everydayness of that kind of totally different perception of the world. I think it's quite revolutionary, to be honest with you, because I don't think that people have that kind of perception. And I think that's the kind of different way of seeing the kind of recognizing that, uh, you know, we don't have to reimagine the Caribbean, the Caribbean or Africa or whatever, or wherever is reimagining in itself all the time, having thoughts and ideas about the world. That dismemberment thing I mentioned at the start from Jackie Alexander, it seems to be both, well, there's a fracture and everything's broken, but at the same time, as you just said, Gina, there's something comes out of that that's really creative. Yeah. And the one word I heard in Puerto Rico was syncretism and everything was syncretic. And I was wondering what is syncretic, but it was everything is kind of grafted together from something from this tradition, something from that tradition, some voodoo, some, you know, drums, some kind of Christian saints all put together in a kind of weird assemblage as well. And that becomes a whole new thing that's very creative. So it's kind of both fracture and trauma and something really interesting coming out of that. Well, yes and no. The word syncretic is so loaded because of its history and how it's been used, right? Because it's also a term that disavows that Afro-diasporic religious practices have principles and meanings and languages and practices in their own right. I'm always careful with some of those terms. And then whenever you say voodoo, I always go, You know, I've literally built a career on defending part of that representation. And I think something that I read somewhere in an interview with you, Beatrice, where you talked about like the influence of the market and the gaze, right? In terms of, you know, I mean, it's really commendable to say as an artist, my primary 
audience, my first audience is the people I'm engaging with. Mm-hmm. You've already told the market, I, I'll see you later, mm-hmm. in a sense, <laughs> or the mainstream market anyway, right? By choosing that, because that's a choice. What that does do, I think, is what you know Francis has pointed to, and that also Yvonne has noted, is that dailiness that is too often sensationalized, mm-hmm. right? And has been rendered otherworldly when it is not. It takes that and offers it in a different way. Now, we still have the problem of what does it mean then to know you as artists have done that work and then you're presenting it to an audience that doesn't have that background, that doesn't have that information, that doesn't know its dailiness, that doesn't know this exists in a broader geopolitical context and has been maligned. That's always the tension and how do you unsettle that part and you can't absolutely like what happens is I can make the work for the people in the market but once Mm -hmm. and I make decisions thinking about that including you know here's um Marcelan decided to play with the head of the goat and that is a decision that he made and he sticks his finger inside and and this may be and I know that this may be something that will shock another audience, you know, and I don't want it to create that kind of exoticism. Mm -hmm. But I also am not going to cut it for that audience then. I'm not making a work with him then. I'm making Mm -hmm. a work, you know, fearing what the image might become. But then, as Gina says, there's a moment in which the work begins to to circulate. And, And as much as you try to make decisions about I mean, like, there's a reason why it's not in the Artes Mundi show. You know, there's, I've also had many experiences where when the work is shown in a place where there is no context for it, right? there's nothing you can do, you know? There's just no way to bring that image down to the place that you're describing, Yvonne, which is of the familiar and not of the other, of the universal subject from that and that's a a feeling that at least as somebody who made that work like invited by a festival in Haiti I had like a crisis over the first week that I was there how can I make the work I can only say that the organizers Guy Regi who you know Gina were like come on wake up wake (laughs) up wake up you know like If we are artists here and we make work under these conditions with all these problems, because they do not disappear for an artist who are there, then you also have the responsibility to engage with them. And they're problems. They're not, you know, things that are solved in a, you know, the the problem of, let's say, the circulation of the image and its misreading and its decontextualization. They're problems for Haitian artists as well. So, yeah, all that is there. All that is part of the work. I wanted to ask you, Beatrice, because you were talking about wanting to make the work for the people, who the work is about, if you like, Mm -hmm. before you make it for anyone else. And filmically, I was very struck by the fact that you use film. You use Mm -hmm. 60 millimeter film. Am, Am I right in saying that? In some of them, yeah, some, yeah, some which is a kind of from an archival point of view, it's a very interesting thing because you know most people have moved on to digital now, but you still have film, film, which is for me very beautiful. I also thought about Daughters of the Dust in a kind of interesting way because filmically she wanted to make something that she could preserve. She wanted to make something that was for the people first that she was making it for the Gullah uh, people, and then everybody else can consume it as they consume it, as long as the people that she made it for were satisfied 
with what she had done. She had felt that she had done a job. And I and I felt that quite a lot with the work that you had done, the way you chose to use the camera, the subjects that you were dealing with, that you wanted to go more and more and deeper and deeper down that road rather than anywhere else. I mean, most of my work comes out of a lot of improvisation. And then there's moments where I want the possibilities to actually be less. And there's a kind of care that you have to have around 16 millimeter. It structures you when the possibilities are so many, if only because it's so expensive to even, you know, consider that you're going to shoot three rolls of film. Really, the beauty is part of it as well. Just thinking about the films that are in the Artes Mundi show, a lot of the ones on 16 millimeter I shot in Vieques Sound, which is between Vieques and Puerto Rico. Um, so they're order of view to Vieques or they're in Vieques. And it's a place that has only been really imaged by either the military apparatus or, you know, the service and tourism industry. And that is a specific set of lenses, you know, and specific ways of moving the camera or not moving, you know, like a domination of like the drone shot, the aerial shot or a way of looking that I wanted to be able to not undo. I'm not sure if that can be done, but look otherwise, you know, the 16 millimeter helped me to think, you know, it organized my eyes in different ways. There is that cinema in the military base just opposite Vieques that you had a real interest in as well. Yeah, because the military bases basically restructure the space like a U.S. suburb. It has a bowling alley and it has a film theater and it has houses are like California bungalows. And now there's bats and iguanas inside them. But initially they were meant for a certain kind of life to be reproduced there. There's maybe something bubbling under this and various things everybody has said about other people viewing the Caribbean and actually sort of almost seizing back control of making your own view of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Also, you you work at a co-founder of Beta Locale, which is a kind of a a sticky place for artists to stay and not leave San Juan Mm -hmm. uh, and go to America. We mentioned the word omphalos once, which belly button basically that James Joyce uses in Ireland to say Ireland is kind of like the belly button uh, mm. of the world, which is kind of ridiculous that Dublin would be the centre of the world. Um, but actually, t- you know, and you're quite excited by that word as a kind of, well, the Caribbean could also be, you could just recenter everything and say, let's look from here and generate ideas about the Caribbean from the Caribbean outwards rather than inwards. I remain struck by this idea of haunting the future that Beatrice mentioned earlier and what it means to do work that's helping us expand the idea of the archive in terms of a future archive. I think the fact that Puerto Rico has had to still reeling from the impact of Maria and that the Caribbean just by virtue of where it's situated in terms of the natural disasters and then the man-made disasters that are sort of accompanying each other has made for an understanding of that region, even though people tend to see it as, you know, bases, beaches, and plantations or whatever. You know, I I often talk about Haiti's been at the avant-garde of our futures, right? Thinking about having to deal with these climate disasters, military disasters, economic disasters, 
social experiments that have failed, if you think about it, in terms of the economics of how wealth is distributed, economies have been extractive, and racial politics. I mean, it's it's all right there. That had to do with the making of empire and capitalism. I mean, it's all there. So for me, when we talk about, do we have an idea of, you know, where we are and where we're going? And I'm like, it's actually been there. It's there right now. I mean, and, and one of, you know, because I'm so situated in, in North America where things tend to be very shiny, right? Even if it's all a mess, it's very shiny. Everything, there's big buildings, there's lots of high buildings. And meanwhile, you know, we know what's been happening economically, right? We know what that pandemic has resulted in. Yet artists continue to try to engage with these conditions and at the same time manage to forge new aesthetics. So so that for me is like, that's the human condition at its most explosive, but we have to keep creating because we have to keep living. Actually, Francis and I, maybe have had a lot of arguments about the idea of archives, but you know, I mean, like, I think like, I'll just summarize something that has, is part of every conversation about the archive, that the archive is, well, it's only an archive for some, not everything, like the ways of living and thinking of black people in the world, or of the dispossessed in the world have been suppressed, erased, burned down. So when we think about like what is the actual material of the world to think with, then in many specific projects of mine, I have encountered then the need to just re-signify whatever is there. Is that is this the only thing that is left? Then it's time to invent and give it a new meaning. You know, making a, a project recently that had to do with the Puerto Rican anti-colonial movement that was organized from Chicago and from New York, seeing that even like the places where people used to meet or the church basement, all of these places had been basically raised down. So there weren't any places for me to be there and think, what was it like to sit here in 1978, you know, with a baby on your lap and imagine a revolution? I can't think with the place and the materials because they're not there anymore. But then like my task is as a kind of engine to just take whatever it is and change its meaning, transform its meaning through making, through images, through playing, through creating languages that don't exist yet. That is an experimental process and it's a process of possible failure as well. But that's the way I think about the idea of the archive. And sometimes I do think, yes, perhaps burn down the archive so that everybody is on the same level playing field so that nobody has anything to remember. There are certain structures that get repeated, like the museum structure or the discipline structure. It's just what we have. We've inherited it. So we just have to keep it going. Or that's what the world seems to do, just reproduce the structures that have remained. And then another thing that I wanted to say is that Sometimes thinking about future really kind of breaks down in my head to actually thinking about the past and everybody who's dead. I guess in a really specific way, I was thinking about, I was at a lecture about Chinese immigrants in the Caribbean. And um, this historian, Jose Lee Borges, was speaking about the bit of documentation that exists about Chinese immigrants who, after the abolition of slavery, came to Cuba through contract labor 
um, and then were imprisoned in Cuba for one reason or another and brought to Puerto Rico as imprisoned laborers. And what we have, like what he has as a historian, are the names that people were given that were not even their proper names, you know. So Jose, you know, Leoncio, Pantaleon. And then from that, the only thing that is left are the people who chose to kill themselves because they would not stand for their conditions. So like this is of all the possibilities of ways of thinking and life. What we have is this little memory of somebody who chose not to accept the conditions of this world. And that is like, how do we think with that person, you know? Or how do you make art with that idea of the, of the idea of all the people that chose not to accept the conditions of this world that we accept still every day. Maybe it's thinking with, with the past or with the dead in order to be able to imagine a different kind of future. But for me, it has been like these moments of shock, of understanding all the different worlds that have not existed because this one exists. So I've been struck by something from your some of your early work because my understanding in my own bit of experience I did a, a presentation performance in Puerto Rico that was many years ago at the university, uh, a conference on, on roots. And, you know, and I'm saying this thinking about someone who now I know is in the audience, Dr. Arlene Torres, who had edited these massive volumes on Blackness in Latin America and the Caribbean and has this amazing article titled the, the people in that Puerto Rican family are really, really, really black or the grandmother in the Puerto Rican family is really, really black. And but the part of the point was to highlight the silencing of Afro presence in Puerto Rico, which is more similar to the DR. And as far as, you know, that part of their history, the African presence is, is something that is not recognized as a source of anything other than something that needs to be silenced and hidden. I was struck by that in terms of your engagement with an African presence mm. in your work, right? As someone who is a Puerto Rican artist situated in Puerto Rico. So I was wondering if you would say a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, in Puerto Rico, there's this kind of mythology of history presented as a relation between white European colonizers and indigenous people and black people. And the relation is not described, you know, in terms of exploitation or in terms of oppression. It's like there's a kind of self-identity in Puerto Rican national culture of a kind of a mixture, you know. This is maybe also the problem with the use of the word syncretic as well without, you know, describing in what conditions. This idea of this undifferentiated relation or unspecified relation where power gets erased is very mm -hmm. common in Puerto Rico. I mean, really the ways in which I have learned to critique this idea from within the work or through a practice has been in collaboration with other artists like Mapensi and Mulawayi Nono, who are a performance duo, a couple of sisters who have done that work of bringing that critique onto the cultural production in Puerto Rico. I have worked with Mapensi Nono in specific projects and I think that perhaps conversations with her and thinking about the 
place from which she makes the work also have had an influence in my work. Yeah. I don't know if we've totally addressed the mm. question that's bubbling under in the chat is can mm. you talk about how you disrupt the ways in which the La Isla se repite in support of a Caribbean futurism as well as a black futurism? Also, maybe your new film that you haven't finished yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a monster of a film. It's based on Monique Wittig's 1969 novel Le Guerrier. So describes ostensibly a war against patriarchy. I mean, even though Wittig in her book imagines all these different you know, groups throughout in all these different land landscapes and it's very sci-fi and, you know, it, it almost maybe doesn't even take place on Earth. It's something different to then situate it within the Caribbean and to have Black women be a part of it and to have this very specific material historical trace within it, all of which make the adaptation a lot more interesting slash complicated. Could we talk a little about the exhibition itself, which is also difficult because none of us have been able to enter the exhibition yet, but it looks very immersive. And also there's a shard of a lighthouse Fresnel piece of glass uh, taped over one of the projectors. And there are pieces called Maliscopios, which I'm taking mm -hmm. as kind of wrong looking. <laughs> and they're reflecting the light from the different pieces around the room. So I'm really interested in how you sort of see what that experience might be like. In a really basic way, I want to think about the camera and the projector and what it does and not take for granted the kind of reproduction of a rational image of space or a certain kind of perspective, not take for granted even like one point of view, that it must be one point of view. Just question it in different ways. And so there's a film within the show called Otros Usos that I shot with these objects, with these mirror objects. And it comes from a very basic and very simple desire. I was trying to shoot within this, you know, monumental Navy base. But whenever I looked through the camera, what my camera did was reproduce these strong diagonals and this kind of colossal image, this colossal presence. And I felt like the image was just repeating, you know, like reproducing what was there already, that there was no way to, that the, the print was so strong and the, the, what the lens does is just to do it again. And then I had the idea only by looking at the ways that shore fishermen were beginning to use the space, like breaking into the base, doing the kind of fishing with a bucket that was at a human scale. And so they, despite the fact that the dock was a mile long, they, with their bodies and their action and their practice, managed to pay attention to it in a different way. So, oh, so that's when I started thinking about the idea of other uses. If I simply use the camera in a different way, then I may be able to create a different kind of image that doesn't reproduce this monumental print. And so, I mean, it's really a simple experiment, you know, like, can another image be created from this huella, you know, right? It's a print. It's from this way of structuring the landscape. A lot of the 
work that I have been doing when I work with 16 millimeter is about that, is about trying to think of simple mechanisms, perspectival mechanisms, or just really formal devices that I can put like a wrench into the mechanism in order to disrupt it in some way. And this many times produces image that I did not expect. So they're a surprise to me when I get the footage back from the lab, which is really wonderful, of course. It's like and I'm, it's the, the biggest present that you can get. You make an image and what comes back is not something that you had planned. It is the purest joy in like the reason why I like improvising as well. There's no amount of planning or imagining something that is not somehow trumped by the person that you're with, that you have brought something to, returns something that you cannot have imagined. So it's a way of, through a kind of chance operation, working with those mirrors, it's a way of returning an image to me that I could not have planned. Can you talk a little about how Puerto Rico has been isolated from the rest of the Caribbean because of colonial status? Yeah, the Caribbean is completely fractured, each one tightly related to our particular recent colonizer. And so like the work of communicating and making work and thinking together across the Caribbean is really hard. <laughs> you have to really want to do it. You have to travel 16 hours to get from San Juan to Haiti when it should be a two-hour flight. And this is like work that a bunch of artists have been doing in the Dominican Republic, in Haiti, in Trinidad. Like by now, we have learned to use, in a way, the ghettoization, right, of like present, presenting of works as like, here's all these Caribbean artists. We have learned to use that to our favor because we, we then create those connections that allow us to speak to each other. You know, it took a while to do really, to, to create the structures that would allow us to be able to, to talk to each other and to make work together. But I feel like by now, actually, I have a pretty healthy idea of who's making work in Martinique and in Guadalupe and in Trinidad. And, I, and we have, through Beta Local, we have, over the past five years, made a really concerted effort to get artists here and artists from here, you know, elsewhere in the Caribbean. You have to work against funding, against, you know, everything, you know. There's, there's no funding out there for us to talk to each other. There's mm -hmm. only funding, right. you know, to go to London or New York or, yeah. you know. Paris. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I found very, very frustrating and why I really got into film programming because I wanted to learn about Africa. I wanted to learn about the Caribbean and I wanted to learn about not Africa just as a continent, but the countries within that space and the same with the Caribbean. And um, it's really hard. I mean, I, I commend you for doing the work with, you know, getting to know um, other artists in the Caribbean, because I found that very, very hard. And mm -hmm. um, I just think how colonization has worked very hard to make sure that we don't speak to each other. And that, that in itself is quite interesting. Like, why are you working so hard to make sure that we don't talk to each other yeah. we're little islands they're scared to they must be it must the, the, the fear must be terrible <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 I, when I first visited Haiti it was like oh there's all these other set of strategies here yeah hardly any re real communication and political understanding in Puerto Rico about what 
is going on in Haiti or what has happened in Haiti over the past mm-hmm. 200 years, really. Mm-hmm. You'd think that there was an embargo, but there is not. Mm. It's just <laughs> the way that it's all, yeah, structured. But I also mm-hmm. think at, at the same time, you know, depending on the circuits, there is some communication. It may not be in some interaction. It may not always be visible, right? Mm-hmm. So, and more formal way, in the most formal way as someone who is, in an academic world, there's these associations that continue to have meetings, right? So the Caribbean Studies Association has a very strong tie to the University of Puerto Rico and and back and forth. So there are people who are members who've been presidents of the association and, you know, pre-pandemic, there were meetings and the meetings People would come from all over the region, right? But that, we were also speaking of very specific class of people, right? Academic yeah. or, yeah. you know, very middle-class and struggling graduate students who can barely afford to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking though of mutual aids and the fact that I know in the aftermath of Maria, some folks who were in Puerto Rico were reaching out to Haitians and talking to Haitians about how did you survive the earthquake? How did you do it? It may not be always formal, but there is conversation. I tend to, you know, refrain from, you know, asserting that the conquering and dividing has taken over everything. Because if it had, we wouldn't be having this. Yeah, we wouldn't be having this. Absolutely. You wouldn't be talking. You yeah, wouldn't yeah. have gone to Haiti. Yeah, so right. it's yeah. more right. that... Where are the former circuits that have been shut off, that sure. remain shut? And because mm-hmm. the, there are Puerto Ricans and Haitians who aren't conversing at the very top. Yes, they are. Because mm-hmm. that money travels very fast and very easily. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking about the elite, I mean, it's like, where are the difficulties and what are the impediments and where are the open spaces and who's making them and how? So yes. I always want to keep that in there because otherwise yes. might as well yes. say they've won. And I'm not yeah. ready to do that anytime. Oh, no, I mean, I'm not, I, I took me. <laughs> no, no, I know that that's not what you're saying. I'm just adding yeah. by saying that there yeah, are circuits, right? There are, there's movement. It's yeah. not always visible. I go straight to James Baldwin, who says, you know, life is not an academic matter, mm-hmm. right? Like, of yeah. course, I'm optimistic. I don't like the other option. And or even what's happening in Haiti right now, as horrifying and as terrible and as scary as it is, Half of the population is under 25. They're fighting for their future. Yes. And that's what we need to recognize yeah. when yeah. we yeah. see certain changes happening and yeah. the way yeah. that they're happening. Yeah. This is yeah. people fighting to have a future. And it's yeah. more similar to what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement than anything we've seen in Haiti before. Well, that kind of connects to two questions, really, that have just come in. But one of them about how do we build conversations for community recovery and individual healing in the future. And they're both really about the future and honouring the dead and moving forward at the same time. I appreciate the question, like, how do we do it? I have to be really honest and say, I don't know. I had this really, like, I guess it was a sensorial epiphany. It was many years ago. I was in Cuba working with an ethnomusicologist documenting people on the street talking about informal economies and the music. And on the day that I had off, I was wandering around and walked into a church. I never walk into a church, a very simple church. There was only one woman there. She was mopping the floor and humming. And the structure, the cathedral-like structure created this 
Like you could hear the, mm. just the water and movement. And I was dizzy. I, w- I had like this experience of the sublime, right? Mm. I got dizzy and I had to sit down and she helped me out and gave me a cookie. I can't remember exactly what she said. And so I think in that moment, I understood that there is that strong sensorial experience, like even like the formal choices of the way the space is structured and, you know, the experience of that sound, that's the sacred, that's the the possibility of transformation. Organized religion is built on top of that. But the primal, you know, the really right. the yeah. work yeah. happens with the sound and the structure of the building and the presence of two people. And so like that's what art making can do. And you know, maybe that has something to do with healing and possibilities of transformation. Could I add something to this? So Audre Lorde, the master's stools, um, when thinking and talking about what you did with the camera, right? That you see it as, you know, this sort of social tool and the way you've been manipulating it. And what kept striking me was, because I, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm teaching and young people are very concerned with how do we make change? How do we change this, right? You know, the same order, the same pattern, the same waves that you took with your film and cut, splice, mix and change to create something new. And that to me is the work. And, and what I want to say and add to that question about what do we do? There isn't a prescription. I tell the students this, and I say this to myself on a regular basis. Part of the work though, as Audre Lorde, the late poet Audre Lorde would call it, like, are you doing your work? Are you doing your part in engaging with what it is that we've inherited, you know, in order to make something different? And that work often entails self analysis, self-recognition. How well do you know you, right? We too often look for a prescription because we think that's the way to do the work. And I think your work, your actual films are part of an example of what it means to do the work, right? What are the tools you are given? So to the person who asked that question, what is your passion? What is the thing that you are excited about? How are you engaging with that? in a very mindful way to assure that what you're doing is not recreating patterns that you're nervous, anxious, don't want to repeat, right? That's, that's self-work, right? That's, to me, all we can say when someone asks that, because it's almost like, how do you fix Haiti? And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, first yeah. thing first, are you looking at you? Are you able, right, to recognize that? That work that needs to be done on a global scale actually has to start with you. And I'm going to quote, you know, Tony Cade Bambara, who says, the revolution is within the self, mm. in the self. It's not out there. It starts with you and it's, it's an internal process, right? And, it's, and if, if you're doing it, if you're able to engage with it, and there's lots of tools out there, that's where the work actually begins. Um, and that's why I'm hopeful, Beatrice. I was just going to ask Yvonne for final thoughts as well, because I think we have to wrap up. I kind of go along with what Gina's saying in, in a very big way, that you start with yourself. And I think also um, everything is generational, this thing about how do we honour the dead? Well, we are actually part of the dead because our DNA and our material 
existence is because someone came before. So when you are going within, you are actually tapping into your ancestral heritage, whatever that might be. And so whatever revolutionary aunt or great aunt you had, she is within you. And I think also it is about a generational thing. I think the Black Lives Matter is a really great example of knowing that the, the next generation is going to make changes, won't stand for some things and they will move forward and they will use, use social violence if necessary or whatever tools they have available to them because I think that is part of growing up. I think that every generation has to have that moment where they just, you know, they shift things from where it was before. This episode was made possible by generous support from our partners at Cardiff Metropolitan University and by Arts Council Wales. Sound editing was by Bulb. The episode was introduced by me, Melissa Hinkin, curator at Artist Mundi. In the next episode of At the Table, we'll be joined by Carrie May Weems, who has also been shortlisted for Artist Mundi 9. Joining Carrie at the table will be artist and professor Sonia Boyce, OBE and RA. Thomas J. Lax, Curator of Media and Performance at MoMA, New York, artist, writer and curator Omukhia Mohamed, and artist, stylist and founder of Docs magazine, Nicole Reddy. This conversation will be happening as a free live webinar on Friday the 7th of May at 7pm British Summer Time. To book a ticket for this event, please visit artismundi.org.